0: Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert-Kennedy. And
1: this is the 10th straight episode where Teddy uh, is not here. Is that 10, really? Yeah, I think so. Jesus. Yeah, she's one. Uh, this
0: point. This, uh, this is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years. Uh, if it can kill us or turn us into CRISPR robots, mm-hmm. we're in. Mm-hmm. Our guests have been scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians astronauts a reverend mm-hmm. you heard me right and we work together toward uh, action steps that our listeners can take with their voice their vote and their dollar
1: that's right and this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions thoughts dreams visions uh nightmares any of those things feedback in general to us on twitter at important not imp or you can email us at funtalk at important this week's episode brian asks is faith sustainable Question two, is that a clickbait title? <laughs> yeah, it is. So you're welcome.
0: Uh, our guest is the magical Dakila Chungyalpa. She's the founder of the LOCA Initiative at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, which is an education outreach platform for faith leaders and religious institutions focusing on environmental issues. Tequila is a trained scientist and Buddhist who hails from the Himalayas. She's worked at the World Wildlife Foundation and Yale University. She speaks five languages, no big deal, one fewer than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, she combines her passions for uh, uh, conservation and faith-based work to try and save the whole kitten caboodle. Whole thing. Whole thing. She, uh, she was wonderful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very inspiring. Like me, a fan of lists, apparently.
0: She likes lists.
1: She likes lists of, of people she appreciates, which yes. is like, hey, if you're going to make a list... That's great. It's a
0: good one. She's full of gratitude. Yeah. Which is a hell of a hope. way to go
1: through your day in your life. You yeah, know?
0: Yeah. She's cool. I love talking to these people who believe in God, but who are also so smart and just like want every human on the planet to be well.
1: Please, <laughs> just, just, please please do better.
0: Yeah. Just come on.
1: Come on. <laughs> just, <laughs> please. Uh, and, and I, again, I appreciated her perspective. Like some of the other faith based folks we've talked to from a wide variety of, of of faiths and, and religions right. and such which is like can we just please forget the other nine things that we fundamentally disagree right. on and just work on this one thing and we can get back to all that other shit
0: mm-hmm. right after we save the planet after we do this dying. thing
1: which has the tick tock tick tock yeah and then it goes boom so um anyways great conversation with tequila and uh we're uh we're excited to present it to you
0: let's listen to it okay
1: Our guest today is Dekila chung and together we're going to ask kind of a loaded, uh, crazy question. Uh, is faith uh, sustainable? And, and and of course, that applies through our prism of, of the planet and the species and all of those fun things. Tequila, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: We are very excited to have you. Brian, especially, is very excited. So excited. Tequila, <laughs> uh, uh, if you could just tell us and everybody uh, briefly uh, who, who you are and, and what you do.
2: I am an environmental scientist that has turned fringe, I think. <laughs>
0: um,
2: I had a very traditional conservation background. Uh, I come from the Himalayas and you know, had this deep love for wildlife and wilderness areas growing up I- in wilderness for lots of my childhood. And uh, went to school, uh, got my degree, started working for the World Wildlife Fund immediately and went out back to the Himalayas and the Mekong region. And in that process, I got more and more and more depressed. Uh. (laughs) Um, Basically, I started working on community-based conservation, which is really at the community level. And, you know, thought that would make this enormous difference because what we were doing is trying to get basically stakeholder buy-in for communities so that they had the rights to natural resources. And of course, after some time, I realized that wasn't really addressing the problem in terms of urgency and in terms of scale, right? When you think about forest degradation or, you know, just uh, poaching and, and trafficking or climate change, all of that, it was just like these tiny little wins when we were looking at massive scale problems. So I then switched and took the job to become the director for the Mekong region for WWF US, which is river basin wide. It's five countries. You know, it's the most beautiful river on on the planet. Just amazing diversity and thought this is the right scale. Like this is it. We Mm -hmm. need to work, you know, transboundary. We need to work with governments. We need to work with all kinds of different stakeholders. It cannot only be communities or government. And then over five years of working on hydropower and climate climate change, slowly had that same experience that, God, this is still not fast enough and this is still not extreme enough, really, to Mm -hmm. address the issues we were facing with. At that time, it was really the hydropower issue, right, in the Mekong. And obviously, the... you know, just the level of resources that are stacked against um, people who want to talk about sustainable hydropower is staggering. Sure. Um, and so I was at this point, I think, of real crisis in a way when I went to visit my family. And as usual, my family dragged me to Bodhgaya, where our annual pilgrimage happens for Tibetan Buddhists. I come from a family of staunch Tibetan Buddhists. And mm-hmm. um, my lineage is all about actually, interestingly, meditating in. Wilderness areas. And I had this epiphany because there the Buddhist teacher who's the head of my lineage, his name is the Karmapa, he started talking about vegetarianism. And now I'd been trying to be a vegetarian for years just yes. from a climate perspective <laughs> and failed miserably, right? So he was talking about it in terms of Buddhism. And what he said is, How many of you take this, do this prayer every day? And it's literally like every single Tibetan knows this prayer. It's the most basic prayer, which is you know, which translates to, may I ease the suffering of all sentient beings, right? And we mm-hmm. say it like, like, it just comes out of our mouth all right. the time. Sure. And he said, how many of you think of that when you are eating? And how Ooh. many of you look at the food on your plate and realize that you are eating the flesh of living beings that died to feed you? Mm-hmm. And how is it that this isn't, how do you not see the dissonance was what he was saying.
1: Wow. So he
2: puts like this the nuclear option. I know he put this challenge and he said, I became a vegetarian and he hardcore came from Tibet when he was, you know, in his teenage years. So for him, it's even harder because that's basically the diet in Tibet. And he said, I became a vegetarian. How many of you would consider becoming vegetarian and think of it as as your practice, as your Buddhist practice? Wow. um, I just watch my hand go up, you know? And th- so there were like two parts of me. There was this very deeply moved, emotional, the inner being, right? The inner, that thing that's inside of us that, you know, the subconscious, let's call 80% of human decisions are made by the subconscious. And there it was, like my hand went up. Mm-hmm. And then there was the brain and the scientist that was looking at the hand, going, What, what is going on? It was what thousands you do? of hands. <laughs> it was that and my brain was just like how I am doing this not out of climate science, not out of my knowledge, not about all the facts and figures I know about how much water is wasted, you know, through the production of beef, none of it. Mm-hmm. This is coming as an act of faith. And it was just like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. Really an epiphany, like a switch just went off in my head. And that was in 2007. And so I met his wholeness and he is actually a very avid environmentalist. And so He asked me to create environmental guidelines for his monasteries and nunneries. There are over Mm -hmm. 200 um, under him that are spread across the Himalayas and Tibet. And so I thought it would just be this two-week vacation that while I was with my family, I would just churn out this draft that, you know, married Buddhist philosophy with the science to explain what was happening in the Himalayas, mm-hmm. in particular climate change, because people are seeing the difference. It's very, very visible, very tangible yeah, for them on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. But, you know, there is no framework for it. Right. And what they hear in the news just paralyzes them. And so he wanted a way out and he wanted monks and nuns to become solution, the solution. And in that process, I just completely converted and had this realization that, you know, in some sense, like my training as a scientist had pulled me so far away from talking about the things that mattered, like, like sacred values and you know, even emotions or even even things like sadness, like how easy it is for us to talk about our anger and how impossible it is for us as professionals to talk about our sadness, right? Mm-hmm. It was like all of this suddenly just stacked up. And and so I came back to WWF and, and <laughs> lobbied for six months and got a program called Sacred Earth eventually and
1: um, basically
2: worked with faith leaders around the world for five years.
1: Wow. Okay. It's a very, very
2: long. That might be the longest answer.
1: <laughs> uh, no, those, but it's, but, but that context is so vital because uh, look, there, we have plenty of people on all incredible scientists or, or, or movers and shakers that are either trying to upgrade the species or so or save us. And, you know, there's a fair amount that are like, oh, and then I decided to go to school for science and I did it and I've worked hard and there's this and this. And that's great. That's all commendable and hard to do. And we're so appreciative. It's something that people can recognize and, and empathize with because either they did it themselves or they know someone who did it or something like that. Your history is just a little bit different from most of our listeners uh, because they were not born in the Himalayas. Right. Uh, and we're not raised in a Tibetan family uh, uh, or anything like that. And and, and that perspective uh, is is why we're here today, right? And And what yeah. you've done with it.
2: Yeah. So one thing I do want to bring it back to before I forget is that for me, that experience and that epiphany of realizing that faith can move people to do something that is fantastic for the planet was just staggering. Because I, when I realized it, what I realized was it wasn't just a blind spot for me. It was a blind spot for my entire conservation community. There were so few people who were reaching out to faith leaders, you know, who were talking to religious institutions. And right. now this is where I would love to launch into why we need to work with faith leaders. But we're if you have another it. question. No,
0: we're yeah. going to get to it. Don't worry. We're, g- we're going to go do this <laughs> right. thing. Don't uh, worry. <laughs> Are you still a vegetarian, by the way?
2: I I have been for ten years, Fantastic. but last year I ate a little meat and now I like bring it in once in a while. But and this brings me back to Tibetan medicine. My Tibetan doctor insists I must eat a little meat. So it's hey, a, a little bit
0: better than, you know, yeah, four burgers but I, a week.
2: I, I'll probably go right back. I also got diagnosed with Lyme disease. Um oh, and I have the chronic version, which I think is really karmic. You know, because talk about a disease that really, you know, you're looking at impacts of climate change yeah. and just, yeah. It's amazing, right? So I actually think it's very karmic. Mm-hmm. I got this illness, but it brought me back to having to give up like gluten and dairy and sugar and sure. not getting enough protein. And so, so very Sad. Love it. still very
0: struggling. All right, Brian. Um, all right, quick reminder for everyone. Uh, our whole goal with this uh, podcast, and these conversations is to provide uh, some quick context for our question uh, at hand and then uh, dig into some action-oriented questions that uh, get to the heart of why we should give a damn about this. And uh, and then what everyone out there can do about it.
1: Uh, If that sounds good to you, we can push on. Wonderful. All right. So listen, we start with one uh, important question here. uh, And I feel like you will be entertained by this uh, with your Buddhist background. So instead of saying, hey, tell us your whole life story, yada, yada, that's not the point. We're looking forward. But we do like to ask both practically, but also, I guess we could say spiritually, uh, Tequila, Why are you vital to the survival of the species?
2: (laughs) This is a but this question, who came up with it? (laughs) This is like one of those exercises we have to do, like imagine your death. Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. (laughs) You know, (laughs) come to
2: terms with your entire life. Does it have meaning? Right now, exactly.
1: Good luck. (laughs) Um, Um, no, I want you to I want you to be bold, be bold and honest. Uh, and don't worry, you're not the first ones that have laughed at us. But (laughs) I will say most people turn around and by the end of the answer, they go. By the yeah. end of the answer, they go, oh shit, I'd never really thought about that right. before. You, so yeah. you, what I'm saying is you're welcome. <laughs> so hit so, me.
2: So, okay, okay. So I know for the first part of my life, I think I would have said it is to basically protect the planet in any which way I can, right? Seeing very much myself as, a, in some sense, I suppose, a, let's say a protect protector. Mm-hmm. But lately, what I, I I realize more and more, and this has been something I've been working on for the last five to six years, is that actually I think I'm here for my community. And that is the community of environmentalists and, you know, climate scientists and conservationists, because we are suffering so deeply. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's almost a chronic joke that field conservationists turn into alcoholics. You know, this is like, we joke about it all the time in in field conservation. But the reality is there's now tons of studies showing that PTSD is very common, that we're seeing symptoms of PTSD among environmentalists and, and conservationists, right? And For me, you know, I read this paper by Glenn Albrecht. I don't know if you've read him, but he's an environmental philosopher out Mm -hmm. of Australia. And he coined this term called solastalgia, which I try and speak a lot about, especially with the younger generation of um, conservationists. Because what he talked about was this like deep, sense of grief that we are going through watching the degradation of the planet. And his argument for why that happens to environmentalists is because environmentalists have expanded their sense of self beyond their body. So... You know, we tend to, at a very young age, have somehow incorporated something outside of our body with, with our identity. So it could be a river, it could be a species, it could be the entire planet, it could be a tree, it could, you know, but whatever it is, it is this deep connection that we feel with nature. So when that extended self is harmed, we feel it as if we were harmed. And but because we don't have that philosophical framework, we are unable to deal with that. Right. Mm -hmm. It usually turns into anger. It turns into recrimination. It turns into a lot of, you know, judgment and rage against people who vote certain ways. Right. Like we we are unable to see it in the larger framework of, well, this is because it is so deeply personal to me. And most people don't understand that who don't have that experience. So For me, this decision to work with faith leaders has ended up being this process of getting people to talk about their spiritual connection to the earth. And I find that it doesn't matter what, you know, how atheistic, let's say, a scientist is. Ultimately, when we talk about it in these broad terms, what shows up quite often is that most people had a spiritual awakening in a natural setting. Like we can remember when we, Fell in love with the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it was you watched, I don't know, a spacecraft, you know, a view from a rocket of the Earth, or whether mm-hmm. it was you were walking in a forest with your father, or whether it was like you were in a cave with your mom and shivering all the time, like mm-hmm. it could be, it could be any one of those things. But we remember it because there was this moment of spiritual connection that we had, and I think, I think in it, having that conversation is healing to us because we have to find a way. One of the things, okay, I'm gonna, I'm really going to go off. <laughs> One of the things that I really struggle with is how Western education has forced us to cut that relationship off. In the process of studying nature, we actually objectify it and then we, we you know, remove it ourselves from it, right, to study it. Mm-hmm. We think of humankind as almost outside of nature and that, that dynamic is really, really hard because mm-hmm. I think what we do is we cut off the one thing that actually heals us, which is this this spiritual connection to the earth. And as an indigenous person, you know, as a Buddhist, it's actually, I realize it is very easy for me to see that and to, to connect with that, because ultimately we don't have this complicated level of Guilt and shame, and all of those things that come in, I think, when it comes to you know, especially Judeo Christian traditions and conservation or sure. nature, right? And so, it's easier for me to point it out and say, No, it's actually a psychological thing. And there are tons of studies showing that sitting for three minutes in nature is gonna bring you it, 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 you know, it increases mental health,
1: sure. It I mean, the Japanese that's philosophy. a whole part of their psychotherapy is Absolutely. uh, is literally forced. Well, I think they call it forced baths, you know, yeah. and it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Go, please, please continue.
2: Yeah. So so um, so I think in the last few years I've realized that you know I started working with faith leaders because I thought this was one of the missing pieces and this would could create um, action you know on climate and on conservation at a scale that me or an NGO or, or even a scientist community couldn't right. Mm-hmm. I mean, 80% of the world is religious, mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, over nine out of 10 people say they believe in God, you know, poll after poll, it sh- it shows up. So we, in some sense, have to, I, to realize that we are not, maybe not the right ambassador for these people. So mm-hmm. engaging faith leaders to me is being able to address people at scale. But in the last five or six years, actually, I'm sort of entering the space of realizing that, you know it's not just for the planet, it's for us and our mental health. And which is partly why I've moved to University of Wisconsin, Madison, and I'm now building this program at the center of well-being, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, I I think that's fascinating and and, and does clearly offer such a unique perspective compared to most folks in general, uh, much less most most folks uh, working in the And and now there's, uh, you know, of course, battles over this, the, the, the schism with environmental slash climate or environmental or climate, uh, you know, and, and, and what that means, but for a lot of us, uh, preserving, recognizing, preserving, and cherishing that nature is, is a fundamental part of, or how we got into, uh, this Mm -hmm. work. So, uh, that's awesome. Let's, let's dig a little bit into the context for today real quick. So, um, this isn't the first time we've talked about the role of faith and quote unquote religion in protecting the earth and building towards a more, uh, sustainable and certainly more equitable future. And that's not just across the U S that's everywhere. Cause, cause, uh, we can dig into more and we've talked about on previous episodes and we've talked about in our newsletter, uh, places like the Himalayas are are facing extremely unique and, and, and honestly just harrowing, uh, mm-hmm. circumstances coming down the pipe, uh, with their glaciers and drinking water and things like that. So everybody's getting it everywhere. That's kind of where yeah. we are, right? Yeah. So uh, one might not immediately equate uh, religion and or faith and climate science. Climate science uh, come on, coffee. Come on. Um, <laughs> but there is a long history of support, right? And we've talked about this and, and conflict, of course, uh, among them. But but many of the early scientists and scientific uh, expeditions and endeavors were funded and supported by religious institutions, right? Yeah. And, and much of that goes back to uh, an edict in the Bible commonly interpreted to instruct uh, the faithful to take care of the earth. But of course, um, that's just Western religion, which is not what we're digging into today, because it's just a small slice of the planet. But w- we have some history here too, as, as we're firm believers, uh, pun intended, uh, in bringing everyone that uh, we possibly can on board to help fight back. We're not quite at uh, whatever means justify the end, but we're getting pretty damn close to it at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, in episode four, we talked to Reverend Mitch Hescox uh, about mobilizing Americans Christian population into Mm -hmm. climate missionaries. Uh, Mitch, of course, uh, can't recommend that episode enough because he talks about coming from a long line of coal miners. Uh, He had the, he has the degree himself and did the work himself uh, and has turned himself into a leader in American climate work. Uh, you, mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, you know, I you uh, know I'll mangle this, but it's like his dad, his grandpa and his uncle's all yeah had it was a whole, home. yeah, um, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> so uh I,
2: I know Mitch a little bit, yeah,
1: yeah, it's just it's yeah. incredible, but again, that yeah, perspective amazing. is so unique his he is so valuable because of that as a missionary yeah. Yeah. in episode twenty nine we talked with uh Jose Aguto uh, about the current pope's uh leadership on climate both are are recognized leaders among their flock, and further, um mm-hmm. but what about? and this is where we're going to get to what you're building, you know, religious leaders and institutions who might not have that unique perspective or that aha moment uh, or quote unquote come to Jesus moment or have a (laughs) built-in education or capacity for discussing or tending to the environment, right? They already Mm. have such immense influence in many cases on a hyperlocal level where personal Mm. action can be. Most impactful so so we start to think about boy there's a huge segment, of course it's very diverse, but a huge segment of people with so much influence. how do we get them on board, and once we've done that, how do we get them up to speed and, mm. and I, I, if i'm if i've if I've got it right, it seems like that is particularly what you're working on now that's um, right so if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you're building uh and then how it works basically
2: okay, so you know, when I said I began working with His Holiness the Karmapa in 2007 and I created these environmental guidelines, really what happened was um, something that was completely unexpected. He gave me four or five monks to work with who are very senior. Tibetan Buddhism has its own PhD system, right? And so I was working with these basically doctors in Tibetan uh, philosophy and In that process of designing this very simple booklet of environmental guidelines and sharing it with the monasteries, we started getting so much feedback from the monks and nuns saying they wanted uh, training, that it wasn't enough that they were just reading this. So impromptu, out of nowhere, in 2008, I just created this five-day workshop, like what we would do, you know, in a very Western educated system, you know, in a, right. in that process of like project planning and community mm-hmm. design and so on, and just ran through these five issues. And the response was amazing. So it basically snowballed into a movement the the association is called Koryuk, and there are over 50 Tibetan Buddhist monasteries from India, Nepal and Bhutan that are doing really good conservation work and climate work. And so it's been 10 years now. And what I see is monks and nuns that challenge this idea, you know, Buddhism it, Spends a lot of time talking about emptiness, right? We spend a lot of time looking at samsara and kind of creating a distance from samsara. so there is this very natural philosophical hump that you ne- need to get over before you can convince anyone to act sure um, and so what i'd imagined was that this was mostly a theoretical. An intellectual exercise. And what emerged was this cadre of monks and nuns, you know, in the hundreds and hundreds, and now thousands who have gone through this training that wanted to get out there and do something. So these monasteries do everything from, you know, tree planting, to cleaning up rivers, to going out and cleaning their, with their community, which shocks all the Himalayan people, hmm. you know, doing, putting solar on their roofs and doing really, really good disaster management work. So for the last three years, because of the earthquake in Nepal in 2015, and then because of this anticipation of climate change impacts in the Himalayas, the monasteries asked that we focus just on disaster management. So all of these monasteries have disaster preparedness plans. They have EMTs made of monks and nuns (laughs) that know how to do first aids, that know how to build stretchers with their own robes. You know, they are trained to be first responders. And when you think of it in that way, what institution is more prepared for a disaster than a religious institution that is used to feeding hundreds of people at a time, that stores a a lot of food, tends to store water, right? Has a whole group of people that have already identified their purpose in life to help other people. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's, it's just the power of that is immense. And what I see more and more is how it affects communities around them. So what we have now seen quite often, and unfortunately I haven't done a quantitative study, although it's on my list, is that when monasteries put solar on their roofs, usually the hotels and restaurants in that area start to copy them.
1: Oh, wow. And so <laughs> there
2: there is something that I think... This power of example, because again, like I said, monasteries, you know, have large numbers of people that come and live there that they have to feed and take care of. So typically they put the solar in the kitchen and the hotels that are dealing with similar problems look at the monasteries and go, oh, I didn't think that was cost efficient, but now that you're doing it, maybe I'll do it. Right. So we're seeing the same thing with rooftop water harvesting as well. And so for me, that, that process of seeing this change over the 10 years is one of the most hope giving experiences because I'm involved, you know, elbow deep and it is my community. But similarly, I see it all over the world. The power faith leaders have in influencing behavior and reminding people to keep to their commitments when they do make commitments.
0: I mean, imagine, imagine that like all the, what if all the churches, all the, you know, all the churches and all the pastors and all the churches in this country started, started that, started putting solar panels on the rooftops of the Mm -hmm. churches, Mm -hmm. teaching all that. I mean, the f- country would change in a fucking heartbeat,
1: right? And and, and right. there's been this argument, and and we try to keep these conversations fairly timeless, but <clears throat> or evergreen, I should say. Uh, but there's been this argument online, which is n- not something. Uh, I should ever start a sentence with, or it should be a really good red flag to just disentangle <laughs> hey, I heard about with it. <laughs> but, but among people I really respect in the movement who who have hugely varied backgrounds and perspectives about <clears throat> essentially, and again, you can keep going down the rabbit hole of all these and find arguments on every side. And I do try to see all sides of it, which is, look, the greatest, the greatest effect we can have to slow down climate change are these hugely... Commercial and, and institutional changes that need to be made, correct? Mass transportation changes, mass uh, buildings, shipping, uh, all these things, production of of uh, uh, fossil fuels, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right? It's like you put solar panels on your roof. It's not a big, it's not a big deal. And and, right. and and their point is like, oh, we always tell people to do this when in fact it doesn't really do anything. It's not a lot, but but which is which is fair and then the the argument is oh well that's a very easy thing to say to white people because they can afford to do it what about the people who don't even have trees in their neighborhood and their and and their urban neighborhoods are a thousand degrees because they can't cool down at night and they can't afford air conditioning yes all of that is true but to me what is important and it seems like this is kind of what you're talking about a little bit is the notion of having skin in the game Mm -hmm. which is if i'm I feel like I have a leg to stand on. If I'm doing all these little things that I, I'm 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 probably aware, I mean mm-hmm. I am, but I I can't say most people are probably are like, just don't statistically add up to much. I put some solar panels on my roof. That's that's a you know, it's come down price, a big expense. I recycle, I drive a plug-in, maybe not a full EV, I'm looking at it, and maybe in the next few years all these different things. I try to walk, I try not to eat too much meat, try not to use too much dairy, right? Not having the world's biggest effect in the world. But what it does give me is this ability for me to call my representative or to look uh-huh. at my pastor or to look at this, this store, or this commercial enterprise that's using a ton of energy or, or blowing pollution and, and say like, hey man, I'm doing my part. Right? It might not <laughs> be much, but you got to do something. And yeah. that's a little, to me, it just gives you a little more room for a little more skin in the game to, to say like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. It, we're mm. all doing this. You have to make the big changes. Like yours is much harder, but we're doing it. So I, I get where, yes, it's not I this totally huge thing, that. but, but it does bleed down and it does make your neighbors I, go like, well, I'm, I'm mm. a shitty person. Maybe I should put solar on my roof. <laughs> you know, it's just like, right. Yeah. It's something. It's something.
2: Well, but I don't think of it as an either or, right? Like, of course, exactly. we need systemic exactly. change because, my God, these systems, I mean, starting with colonialism and neoliberalism have been set up to ravage the earth. Like, we need right. systemic change.
1: Explicitly, right?
2: But. That systemic change doesn't mean that individuals cannot also act. I mean, for example, I think maybe the the industry that makes the most sense when I talk about individuals, besides air air travel, is textiles. You know, oh, it's I mean, it's a over a billion tons of carbon, yeah. more than you know, international flights and I think shipping, right? And and when you think about what is thrown at us in terms of advertising, it's at this point it's over five thousand ads a day that we consume passively. So how do we then counter this, what we have basically in the fashion industry, which is throwaway culture? I don't know what it's like for guys, but shopping as a woman is just horrifying because everything is polyester. It's a polyester
1: world. And so my wife doesn't let me shop for myself to start with, um, because we've seen what happens when it's just sweatshirts. And she's like, it's enough. It's enough. Uh, So that's the first answer from my perspective. But yeah, yes. it's 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 a nightmare. And that's why I have so much respect for these companies like Patagonia that that, that say like the one of their ads is literally like don't buy our stuff. And it's, if you <laughs> right. do use it forever yeah. and if you're not going to give it back or give it to someone who's going to use it yeah. or we'll fix it for you. And obviously they're not the biggest company in the world, but that kind of leadership makes such a difference. And there's all these right. other companies springing up like Rothy's with shoes and things like that that are saying like, look, this is a huge problem and we have explicitly not told you it's a problem uh, and so you don't well, know that. You know, I would I would right, wager to right. say most.
2: But I, Wait, sorry, I didn't no, no, take... please.
1: No, get in there. I think the point
2: I'm making is that when these companies look at us, they don't say, oh, it's just one individual and it doesn't make a difference. Right. Right. They see us as mass consumers because mm-hmm. we we put the money down. Right. The argument that individuals are weak and, you know, we're focusing on individual action takes too long is, I think, an argument that actually puts money in the pocket for these corporations. Sure. Because that's they might say that, but they're doing the opposite of that by marketing to us and by putting all these ads to us. So for me, it really comes down to who is equipped to address them at a level that that this issue needs to be addressed, which is at a holistic moral issue and which is really about choices and making choices that are, you know, not how you and I would talk about it, which is like choices that are healthy for the planet and that ensure our future and that is going to bring down carbon levels and la la la, right? That mm-hmm. really is about choices that bring you more happiness. And sure. that is how faith leaders think. Faith leaders think about what brings mental well-being, what brings spiritual well-being, what brings community well-being. If we are able to convince them that blind consumerism and throwaway fashion is actually a moral issue, it is an issue that de- degrades the soul, degrades the spirit, we are sure. then able to talk about individual action at scale.
1: Yep. And that's and, the thing. It, it can it can grow to scale. And that's one, one of the... One of the few benefits of things like social media in 2019, for as much yeah. da- damage as it yeah. <laughs> is has done, uh, you yeah. see things like the women's march and, and what has happened, and and, and those things uh, can can come to life. Don't always, shouldn't necessarily all the time, but can come but to life. Can, um. yeah. I All mean, right. look at the kids, the kids. Yeah. Uh, it's it's oh incredible. God, right? And that's right. Yeah. When I, now, you know, I'm, I'm getting at yeah. the age where I've, I've got a few friends that are a little bit older and they'll say things like these kids are getting ahead of themselves. Wh- whose business is it? This or this for them to be doing this. They can't even vote. And it's like, that's the oh fucking God. point. Yeah, you know, <laughs>
0: exactly. they're going to be yeah. here the longest and they can't even vote. Yeah. And they're doing this. What are you doing? So It is yeah. wildly inspiring. Let's talk about the the Loca initiative. W- you know, where does it start and and what are the identification and induction processes like?
2: So basically, I, when I finished at WWF, I was given a fellowship at Yale and I moved there and I spent 3 years trying to think about how could we support faith leaders and provide them the capacity they needed you know, for faith leaders who are already interested in in protecting, whether they call it creation or the planet, but protecting the earth, right? And protecting nature. And I realized that I was really struggling, honestly speaking, I was really struggling in academia because ultimately um, I am an activist and I am a conservationist and I want action, right? Mm-hmm. But There is uh, a neuroscientist called Richie Davidson over at University of Wisconsin Madison, and he's the guy that basically uh, studied and proved how the brain literally changes in due to meditation. Mm -hmm. So very interesting work. I totally encourage you guys to to look at what he does and invite him.
1: Fantastic! I'm into it. It it is one of the things that one of the things that has got me and kept me on using. uh, I use Headspace most of the time for. Uh, from my meditation and and knowing that there's real science and what it has been proven is really impressive.
2: Yeah, yeah. So he's, yeah, exactly. That's what the Center of Healthy Minds has focused on. And so he and I, he, we've been friends for a long time, but I was telling him about this, this struggle I was having to create an education and outreach platform for faith leaders and religious institutions at scale. Because what had happened over the 10 years was I just ran around and, you know, over Skype was trying to, to answer the questions faith leaders have. And one of the things that people assume about faith leaders that turns out to be completely untrue is that they are impractical. You know, In reality, faith leaders are the most practical, hard-headed group of people I've ever met. Their questions are always about how much is this going to cost? How much of my resources can I put towards this? Can you guarantee the output? Like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the conversations we have are very technical. And Ultimately, what it comes down to is that they want to know where they can make the biggest difference with whatever funding they have and how can they guarantee a a positive output. And that obviously requires somebody to sit with them and do the entire mapping exercises and do project design and, you know, threats analysis and all of that. And what Richie said was okay, bring it, bring it to University of Wisconsin-Madison and we will figure out how to make it happen. And so we launch <laughs> in May and we've been working on it for the last nine months. And the platform basically is open to faith leaders um, from all traditions, uh, including, and I really want to emphasize, including indigenous traditions. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we have four pieces to it. The first is um, basically symposiums and meetings that happen between scientists, academics, uh, policymakers, business leaders, public la la la, and faith leaders behind closed doors to have these really honest conversations about what works, what doesn't, where they're comfortable, where they're not, where do they need help. Some of them might want to publicly announce a partnership, some of them don't. You know, I have worked with evangelical leaders in the past who never wanted to say that they were working with a big green NGO, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an opportunity to build trust and build collaboration. And then the other piece, uh, the second piece is online classes that's available to anyone and everyone. And the idea behind that is that we're trying to talk about and, and stitch together mental well-being, community well-being, and planetary well-being as one conceptual course, you know, that it, that there shouldn't be this disti- distinction and that when we think about our lifestyles and the lifestyles, mindful li- lifestyles we have to live, all those three things need to be considered. And so that's part of that course. The third piece is probably the piece that I think or I hope will benefit faith leaders the more, especially from third world countries, which is the idea of providing a certificate course designed for them Mm. that connects environmental science education and religious and traditional ecological knowledge, and then explores how faith leaders can basically turn the tide on climate and environmental issues. So it's very focused on experiential, you know, project design, project management, And it draws on different religious traditions. So, you know, there will be a lot on creation care, which is huge for uh, mainline Christians in the United States, or integral ecology, which is huge for Catholics, you know, especially Mm -hmm. um, a term that was coined by Pope Francis, interconnectedness, which is huge for Buddhists. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of all Mm -hmm. over. The idea is that we are recognizing that these principles exist in all religions. Mm -hmm. Um, And out of that, I think, will emerge a program that is designed for students to go as fellows and accompany these faith leaders to help set up the courses. One of my biggest struggles, you know, working for WWF and then beyond was just not being able to meet the needs of all the faith leaders that were uh, reaching out to me, Mm -hmm. you know, wanted somebody to come and be with them for nine months as they experimented, right? Like if, if you were building, you know, a project with, that impacts hundred people. You want an expert with you. And for the most yeah. part, you yes. just didn't have that kind of technical expertise. And I think in some sense, a trusted expert you know, mm-hmm. who, who understands their their religious tradition, who understands the institutions, who knows how much to push, who can build bridges, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's that sort of people, that's that kind of person that's needed. And so the idea is that the fellowships basically send people like that with faith leaders to help set up these projects. And I almost see it like a pipeline for faith-led projects, you know, sure. environmental programs. But I do want to say, This is a new faith leaders have been doing environmental work all over the world. I mean, if you look at climate change, whether if you look at disasters, whether we say it's climate disasters or not, the people that respond the most are faith institutions. They are the first there, right? They're almost always, you know, it's the church or the mosque or the temple that ends up being that safe space for people when they're in distress. So we have to realize that by also demanding and insisting on our vocabulary, we actually lose this window where we can collaborate, you know, sure. where we can come together. And I think for me, part of the program and keeping it at Madison and keeping it with the Center for Healthy Minds is this, this acknowledgement that there is knowledge to be gained both ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I, I'm I'm curious everything you wh- where you've come from, which is not something we choose, but uh, how you h- how that was such a part of your life and your realization, uh, both early and later, and how you want to interact and and make a difference, uh, put a dent in the universe with your with your work. H- how does this new endeavor, the local initiative, but w- which really, I mean, the more you just said, and the more I think about it, I mean, the waterfall effect of like you said, creating this pipeline of like generations on uh, of these people starting to train each other is is incredible. But now you're you're such a vital facilitator. How do you feel like that reflects and builds on your on your life work?
2: (laughs) I don't know how to answer that question. You know, none of this was planned. That's all I can say. (laughs) If somebody told me 12 years ago, this is what I'd do. I'd just laugh them out of the room because I was really proud of being a field conservationist and being trained in that tradition. And part of that training was, you know, I distinctly remember the first time I saw a rhino and I, I think I squealed and the scientist, the chief scientist said, you know, you don't do that. And I think I said, oh, that's really <laughs> cute. And he was like, don't. we don't call them cute. We call them charismatic megafauna. <laughs> and I was like, OK, charismatic megafauna. Sure. Like, that was me, right? We, And I think this, I mean, OK, maybe I can talk about this piece. As a brown woman, as an indigenous woman, you know, as a woman raised in a very, you know, faith-led family, especially of women practitioners. Mm-hmm. I, I there was a severing that happened when I started studying science and and you know environmental science in particular, and I I, I didn't realize that happened because among, you, among your family. No, in myself, within myself. Oh, right? And I think I think, my guess would be definitely for people of faith, but I think for also for Indigenous people, we all go through this when we enter Western education systems, you sure. know, there is this process of where rationality is suddenly just so valued, inherently considered more valuable than intuition or, you know, emotion, right? That it, our assumption that intelligence is more valued and more important than emotion, when you know, like I said earlier, 80% of our choices, human choices are made by the subconscious brain, you know, by feelings rather than facts, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then we use our facts to justify the feelings. That's that's how humans work. Mm-hmm. But somehow when we go through the process of higher education, we are convinced that that is, you know, that is wrong. Like we are convinced to not really feel too much and to to really rely on our brain. And mm-hmm. I think that is fair and good. I don't necessarily sure. have a problem with that, except when you have been raised in a tradition where everything is about that, you know, uh, as a Karma Kagyu Buddhist, my experience of meditation is, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, it's called Mahamudra, but it's basically this process of losing self you know you just sure, become yeah. one with everything right mm-hmm. i i feel ridiculous talking about
1: this but no, no 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 please don't that's way. why you're here don't feel ridiculous where
2: that's your a, identity thing. completely dissolves mm-hmm. you know and you, you as you're examining your yourself you you know I mean, people laugh while they meditate. I have laughed because it's like you realize how ridiculous you are thinking that tequila is a real thing.
0: You know, <laughs> right.
2: I said, this this is ridiculous, and and for me from. Applying the environmental perspective to that is even more fascinating because it's like, well, you know at what which part is thequila? is it when the oxygen is entering my mouth? Is it when the oxygen is leaving my mouth like
1: oh yeah. where no, you, you can go down some s- begin, you, know? you can go down some serious rabbit holes with this stuff and and <laughs> and i'm I am you know ecstatic to indulge those things like you yeah. said from from the metaphysical to to the physiological, and that's where it must be amazing to be someone who 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 is both as intelligent, but as trained in both uh, and to marry those two in that experience while at the same time trying to forget them. But I mean, it's it's fantastic.
2: And and so uh, thank you. And I think this is a conversation we should have some other time, too, because sure. now that I know you guys meditate. It, it, I invite you to come to Madison oh, um, in a heartbeat. So but I, but I think what happened for me personally was that I started seeing myself as a scientist by day and a Buddhist practitioner by night. It was like I had to do this demarcation to function.
1: So you're,
0: Batman, you
2: know, because basically. yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of like yeah. And I think most people of faith do that. You would be surprised how many scientists of people of faith, you know. And it's only in many ways, you know. I'm married to an Indian man who just doesn't understand why this is an issue. He's in the mm-hmm. IT world, right? Mm-hmm. And because in India, this is very natural. You know, I don't know if you remember last year there was the the rocket, ISRO. So ISRO is the Space Research Organization for Mm -hmm. India. The top scientist before that rocket launched successfully, he went to a temple. He went to Tirupati and he broke Mm -hmm. a coconut and did all these prayers. And like, imagine if this happened anywhere in the world publicly. You know, like he's offering a mini rocket to the temple god, right? right? Right. And in India, this is this dualism isn't one. Like here, it's a dualism, and in the West it's a dualism. And so for me, you know, going back to this when you asked earlier, like, what is your purpose? Part of that is to say we don't need these intense demarcations that are designed by what I see very much as a neo colonial Western education system. You know, as an indigenous person, as a brown woman, I. I want to take what is useful and I want to take what benefits the world, what benefits all all sentient beings, my community, but I get to draw the line for, for, for myself. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when we are in that education system, how many of us even think we are able to do that? How many of us even are, we're just so overwhelmed by deadlines and classes and so on. Um, And so I think that is the one thing that I've gained in the
1: last few years.
0: Nice. I I love that. Um, Um, Uh, Tequila, where do you have doubts? Where where have you run into resistance?
2: Mostly in our community, in the science community. I've never actually had any door closed in my face from the faith side. Even the most scary evangelical you can think of, you know? They've they've had a conversation with me. I mean, crazy things happen sometimes, you know, people ask me all kinds of questions and, you know, people say they see the devil on my shoulder that they want to, (laughs) you know, I mean, all of that happens, Mm -hmm. but the conversation takes place, you know, but uh, in the science community there, I did lose friends when I initially started working with faith leaders, really (sighs) lost deep friendships because people felt like I was um, in some sense, you know, either doing something very trendy Mm. and, you know, not really meaningful on the ground or who felt that I was going over to the enemy. Um, I do have a friend who I still think of as a dear friend who hasn't talked to me in a long, long time, who felt that way because he um, came from the Catholic tradition and because of all the terrible things that happened, really had a rejection of religion as a whole, right? Sure.
1: Which is understandable because it's it's real bad.
2: Yeah. And so, they ha- it's not that this work doesn't have its challenges. However, I do think that it allows us to talk about a lot of other things. Like for me to be able to talk about the pain and suffering that we're experiencing at a emotional, physical identity and then spiritual level. I, I hope that then regenerates and kind of, you know, it adds to a larger conversation that has been happening for decades. Right. And so... I do think we need to pull back quite a bit from the, the economic valuation trend that we tend to go towards with, with nature and with ecosystem services and so on. It's it's a little horrifying for me, honestly, that we rely on it so much and we rely on technology so much to solve our issues um, because unless we address the human spirit, the the instigator of all the problems doesn't change, then, you know, sooner or later, we're going to come up with more problems, right? Even if we fi- have a technological fix for this one. Sure. So I do think we have to address that root cause which is human nature where else do I have doubt oh my god I'm so concerned about the timeline I mean I don't know anyone who you know any of us who who aren't I mean we know we have this very small window to make as much change as possible and so I, I personally you know but the more I was looking at how markets influence or how marketing influences behavior, the more I realized I really don't want to use fear as a tactic. Sure. You know, I, I I find myself appealing to all kinds of institutions and sometimes on Twitter, randomly throwing out <laughs> to to the vast, uncaring universe of Twitter that I wish, you know, my Respected colleagues would stop using this this language that is all about I don't want to call it fear mongering because that's not what they're trying to do but this sure. this deep desire to shake everybody up right and so right. then what we do is we fall back on this on these tactics that are ultimately i think what it does is paralyze most people who don't understand or don't care about it if we ourselves are using basically clickbait or you know doubt or fear or uncertainty what we have to acknowledges that that actually doesn't really result in any lasting change.
1: Right. Panic I'm makes very, us panic.
2: Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I think you and I actually had this exchange about like, what do we do when we panic about climate change, you yep. know? Right. And and so in so much as possible, I do think, I love the fact that your podcast, uh, you know, focuses on what can we do and ends on a high note because that high note is missing so much of the time. I mm-hmm. I mean, It is.
1: It's a tough one. So, sort of segueing into that, and then we're going to actually start to dig into this action here. But I am curious because it is such a unique perspective, and it is such a daunting number that I want more people to appreciate. As if they don't have enough shit throwing at them, like we were just saying. But sort of on a more existential, spherical question. So we talked about uh, Celestalgia. You know, reports say a third of the Himalayan glaciers are are in deep trouble, and that's. When you add up all the rivers that come down from the hills it's it's water for about two billion people. How mm-hmm. is that these days being handled on a on a on a, on i guess the duality the the faith and the psychological standpoint how How do faith leaders there reconcile that physical reality much of which it much of which is inevitable at this point with mm-hmm. what could be this truly daunting future How is that being confronted there?
2: I see a really interesting thing that's happening in the Himalayas with with the Koryuk monasteries and nunneries I mentioned, and I think it also is happening at a global scale, which is, you know. Uh, communities banding together. So at a global scale, what I see is it's cities that are really giving us hope and that are leading forward on climate action, right? Mm -hmm. If we rely on governments and intergovernmental politics, I mean, it could be a long while, but cities have stepped up and said, you know, I am going to use, you know, like all my urban planners are on this or Mm -hmm. whatever that might be. And I see the same thing happening in these communities. Basically, because of the disaster mon- management training we're giving, the Koryuk monasteries, they are reaching out to their local communities and creating these hubs of management plans. Now, that is all about adaptation but there is this interesting piece that's coming in now you know in the 10th year of practice which is about mitigation and which is really mm-hmm. about monasteries so tibetan buddhism you know under his holiness the karmapa and under the dal lama and many of the teachers most monasteries are vegetarian mm-hmm. but there is this real push to actually have communities become vegetarian, which I hadn't seen before. Um, this real push to, you know, share resources, to to not own too much, to have organic gardens. All the monasteries that I work with and nunneries I work with have organic gardens that are in some sense starting to become self-sufficient when it comes to food, you know, that also see solar and see rooftop water harvesting as part of that self-sufficiency process. So going back to what you said earlier about your background in science fiction and, you know, you knowing how much I focus on the doomsday scenario, Mm -hmm. it really gives me hope that communities are thinking that way because I think we have to be prepared for that. That is our reality. If you look at just the, oh God, the number and frequency of disasters that we're seeing, right, the more we can get people to be prepared and to think of them. Themselves as one unit, the more mm. likely we are to survive it and to change how we rebuild in the future.
1: Sure, and um, that's what's so, it's been so expir- inspiring about what so many of these kids are doing out there these days, yeah. right? Is they're going yeah. just yeah, we've we've organized it, we've done it. We're we're marching across cities, we're skipping school, we're sitting in senators' office, and, and we're doing this thing. Yeah. Whether you guys are in office or ready to do it or not, right. th- this is happening because yeah. we are the ones that are gonna have to suffer and, and, and truly adapt to, to what's going on here um,
2: yeah
0: ugh. Um, yep
2: absolutely yeah uh, they so, I mean March 15th right
0: yep yep yeah. <laughs> so let's dig into how uh, how our listeners you know who many of them are, are progressive science nerds who care about the future uh, and our species and our planet uh, and you know who might not not be uh, uh, people of faith, uh, but how, how how can they help your specific mission? Our, our goal is to you know provide action steps that our listeners can take uh, to support you and and uh, they can use their voice, their vote, and their dollar. So let's get into how we can how we can do that. Let's start with uh, with their voice. You, you know what what are the big actionable specific questions that that the rest of us should be asking our representatives? And then of course, uh, you know because of today's topic, they're they're faith-based leaders.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So my first appeal really would be for scientists and everybody else to reach out to the local faith communities that they are living among,
0: right? Mm -hmm. Whether
2: they are people of faith or not, it doesn't matter. Because most faith organizations are trying to understand what they can do on climate change or on the environment and feeling completely overwhelmed. So even if you just reach out and say, hey, is anyone, you know, I I walk by this church every day or I bike by this church every day or this mosque, anyone here working on environment, you'll be surprised that most churches do have somebody who's just weary and exhausted and has 5% of their time dedicated to the environment and just doesn't know what to do, right? So My first request would be that, to reach out. And I think in that sense, also recognize that, you know, there are all kinds of like Meatless Mondays are being really pushed forward by by churches sure. right now in the United yeah. States, right? Huge impact when it comes to climate change and so on. I mean, the other thing that I'm really fascinated by, I think one of you said earlier, what if, what if the Catholic churches were putting solar? Well, WWF has tried that. And mm-hmm. I think for scientists that are working on, you know, especially on making solar more affordable, turn to faith institutions because they are the ones who are going to, be able to trigger change in their community if they put it up. Sure, what you're, It's almost like free advertising and reassurance, and it's sure. coming from a trusted source.
1: Sure, sure, exactly. And that's the key. And I and I actually want to go back to the first point on, on, on being a trusted source, since you are sort of a double agent. Um, when, <laughs> when when we're talking about telling these scientists who are driving their EVs or biking to work or walking to work or, or whatever, that are going past these faith-based institutions, whatever they... However, they might be shaped or formed or believed in. What specifically, how should they frame that reach out? You know, what is that conversation starter that they could be having? And again, the more specific, the better so that we can really enable people to do this.
2: Um. Oh God, this is gonna get me so much hate mail. Let's drop evolution for the time being, people. Let's just you know, let's just agree to disagree on a few certain things, and just start with where
1: we agree. Well, that's like, a, well. It's uh, also that like evolution in, in any the, way. <laughs> evolution's in the like, sorry. Ev- by the way, no, no, no. Please, <laughs> evolution. Like, yeah, we should talk about that all day. However, there is a ticking clock, and there's other shit we have to deal with. Yes. Let's just deal with yeah. that first.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I have being, having tried to build these bridges for like over a decade, Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many times a scientist who happens to be a colleague or a friend will turn to me in a panic before a meeting and say, you know, I can't bow my head down in prayer. You know, I can't do that if they make me do that. Or, (sighs) you know, if they bring up evolution, I'm going to have to talk about evolution. And, it's sort of like what I always come back to is let's say you and I were right now working with a despotic government or with a corporation that is gonna hand us a hundred thousand dollars in this conversation. Would you feel that need to bring up their mining, you know, practices or <laughs> their human rights violations? No, right. right? No, you wouldn't. We wouldn't. We we as scientists are actually trained to to build bridges. We really are, except where it comes to faith. And I think that's partly because science, this this oh my God, this deep entrenchment that has happened, has happened, we ourselves have been part of the identity politics, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we're we just too blind to see it. And so my first request when I ask scientists to work with faith leaders and why we have these meetings behind closed doors a lot of the time is so that, you know, if these conversations happen and they are difficult, we know that they are contained, right? So what you want to do is create that safe space first and foremost, and that is to say, I am here to listen to what you're struggling with, and I'm here to help in any way I can. It's not to push your agenda. It's not to, to get them to become scientists, to believe that, you know, I don't know, to, to change their minds in terms of paradigms, you know, religious paradigms. We cannot go there, and we are honestly not equipped to go there, because all we're going to say is, you're wrong, and look at my data, and that's not going to change their minds. A sure. philosopher is more likely to affect them than scientist is, right? Sure. But what we can do is go there and say, we are here to be a resource. And I think that is so legitimate and that plays to our strengths.
1: Well, also, I just, mean, there's something to, uh, which, you know, we can, again, we can get into in, in another way, but is so true. It's it's a way for the, the, the scientists or people of science or activists in any way to truly humble themselves. Right. Which is, which is the ethos behind uh, plenty of Western religions, good or bad, but to humble yourself. And like you said, just say, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the single best parenting advice I ever got slash marriage advice from a friend of mine was literally just say to your wife, how can I help? And it solves (laughs) everything, right? It just, it. it just, it's literally just instead of like, do this or do this, or, Hey, why don't you just say, how can i help yeah. and and if we just do that if we just walk in you don't have to call and say hey i can do these 20 things for you or hey you know this just go and say i can be a resource how can i help and and yeah. what what could that do yeah yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in that sense, too, we
2: we as scientists are willing to do that for so many different kinds of stakeholders. And here is one of the largest, most influential stakeholder groups in the world.
1: Right, you know, swing the whole
2: thing. All, right, exactly. Fifty percent of all schools in the, in the world are run by religious institutions. Sure. You know, the Catholic Church by itself is the second largest property owner in the world. Right.
1: It's incredible. Right? Is,
0: McDonald's, I mean, I is, is McDonald's McDonald's yeah. number one? I, <laughs> I was just gonna say.
2: No, it's the Queen of England.
0: That doesn't surprise me. Ah. Yeah. McDonald's is, McDonald's the is exactly. in there somewhere.
2: Right? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. And so, how is it? You know, when we think of them in that way, how is it that then we aren't willing to extend ourselves and say, "Oh my gosh, actually, helping you helps me, mm-hmm. helps us, helps the planet. Why not just extend that branch and?" And start somewhere. And so for me, this, you know, you could start anywhere if you want to work at the national level. God knows there are enough institutions working with faith leaders, right? Sure. Um, amazing work that's happening. Like you mentioned, Mitch, Ian, mm-hmm. I mean, they do amazing work. It, for every faith community, there is an environmental organization. There's an organization called EcoSeek, which is just mm-hmm. for seats, you know? And yeah. so the point is that you can work at a national level you can work you know with policy because god knows we do work with faith leaders to to influence policy in in dc why why don't we also work with them to to mm-hmm. help find support for let's say the green new deal right sure. um so there are places i th- i think the point of entry can fit wherever you are but making that decision to come and be part of that team is the most crucial one and that's, sure. that would be my main request
1: um, and what about uh, their vote? Any any specific thoughts there on 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 what our listeners should be should be looking for uh, when it comes to that? And it's specifically, not just like oh, vote for somebody who loves the environment or wants to help climate, but with regard to being more inclusive to the gr- to kind of groups you work with. Is there anything specifically they should be looking for or talking to the representatives about? So,
2: uh, I mean, generally, obviously, I'm a big supporter of the Green New Deal, and hoping, you know, that it's going to be different this time than the previous Waxman, Waxman-Markey deal, though, right? Yeah, that right. failed miserably. So let's see this time. <laughs> but but I do worry a great deal about what's happening in the national parks and what's happening with First sure. Nations. Yeah. Sure. You know, just that the the egregious use of force against First Nations to, for protecting natural resources in their sacred lands. And in some cases, legitimately, let's say, legally, U.S. government legally recognized sovereign lands, right, for First Nations. It's, um, it's in, I mean, one of the things that's happening, of course, is that we're bleeding from a thousand cuts. I think on a daily basis, probably each one of us wakes up, looks at the news and just wants to cry because it's like, which issue should I feel pain about the most, yeah, so hard. like 50 of them. But having said that, ultimately, you know, being an American, I, it it pains me to see what's happening with wilderness areas and what's happening um, in protected areas and how those laws are being degraded or undermined or being turned around. Right. And so that's one issue that I feel really strong about. And I hope that listeners do support God, all the NGOs that work on it. I feel like if I name them, I'll be here forever, but... Just uh, so, a couple of them the and we can put the issue, rest in our show notes. Sure, of course. Like WWF, obviously, Sierra mm-hmm. Club, mm-hmm. Nature Conservancy, right? Uh, and so on. But I also feel really strongly about protecting indigenous rights and protecting First Nation rights. And in that sense, I'm not sure I can say that go to this one, you know, there are several legal organizations that work on it, but I'm not sure I can say just go to one. But what I can say is when we are in America, no matter where we are, we have to recognize we are on First Nations land. You know, Mm -hmm. we are on indigenous land. And the the one thing we could do is learn about who was here first because Mm -hmm. they manage natural resources pretty darn well. Right. Much better than we have. <laughs> so yeah. let's start there with sure. that, you know, recognition and with that respect. And then the second thing we do is we actually reach out and try and make reparations in any way we can. As an indi- indigenous person from the Himalayas, this, you know, if obviously I feel really strongly about it, but also, you know, we can say we are indigenous to the earth and we are one race and we are one, you know, one human species, right? But ultimately we have really extracted knowledge from indigenous populations and treated them as if they are part of nature, as if they are, you know, in some sense that that nameless, I don't know, bucket of natural resources that we can draw on and and basically use however we like and throw back what we don't. And I think what's amazing to me is nature and indigenous cultures are so resilient and continue to give back. You know, the traditional ecological knowledge that exists in indigenous cultures that has actually been the basis of what is now what we think of as modern science, right? That just goes unacknowledged. But also our inability to to reach out and build partnerships with First Nations. You know, Mm -hmm. I I have seen this again and again where scientists and NGOs basically will go so far and go no further because they are seen as activists or they are seen Mm -hmm. as rabble rousers. And I do think there is this very ephemeral guilt slash discomfort about having to enter conversations that people personally are not ready to have. And I think that does come back to the fact that conservation is primarily... Caucasian, right? It's run by Caucasians. And so there is this real, the white liberal guilt, whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, if we are talking about nature being resilient, and we as human species being resilient, we have to turn to the resources that actually you know, are the most bountiful, that are going to tide us over. And I think that does exist in indigenous culture, that level of wisdom. So my request to all the listeners is that you find those partnerships, you build them. And if that means you have to suffer through a little bit of white guilt, yeah, feel it.
1: Yeah, that's feel it. That's what we get at this point.
2: (laughs) Sit with Uh, it. Meditate on it. That's right. Deal (laughs) with
1: it. Move
0: on. It's time.
2: Move on. It's time. You can you can go through it and move on. <laughs>
0: exactly, we got this. Awesome tequila. Well, uh, 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 we've had, we've kept you for quite a while, and we we've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for for chatting with us today. Oh, um, thank
2: you, both of you. This was so fascinating, and I <laughs> would love to meet you guys. We should we should find another time to talk. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah,
0: awesome. <laughs> absolutely. All right, Brian, bring it uh, home. Uh, the, we let we have a few questions for you. Just a few more closing questions. Quinn likes to call them the lightning round. They are not. We should probably change this. But from if you're lightning ready for them, not
1: lightning round. Oh, Just gosh. more God. questions round. Really quick. So, uh, and uh, we do try to keep the answers a, l- a little more brief because it's it's uh, um, it's. <laughs> Anyways, I should, I, gotta, it's, I gotta no, it's, it. it's not a lightning <laughs> round. Look, I'm reconciling some things over here, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, together. when was the first time in your life uh, when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful?
2: I think I was 12 and there was a dam that went up in my community in Sikkim and people were evicted from that area, the indige- one of the indigenous tribes, the Lepcha tribe. And um, there was a very small hunger strike, and I joined them. <laughs>
1: that's All right! My- Whoa, <laughs> that's awesome! That's something. I mean, twelve is is uh, is Gosh. early. That's impressive. My
2: you thought that was crazy. <laughs> I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, who yeah. is someone in your life? That has positively impacted your work in the past six months.
2: There's such a long list. I would start with Richie Davidson at the Center of Healthy Minds, not only because he believed in my vision and you know helped me build this platform for the LOCA initiative, but also because his work has been so seminal in linking mental well-being with community and planetary well-being. And so I think in that sense, there's just for for environmentalists who are making the argument that it's one and the same thing, his work. Is just really influential. Nice. Um, Mary Evelyn Tucker is another person who's over at Yale Forum of Religion and Ecology. She's been my mentor for years and has just been this amazing sounding board and visionary when it comes to building relationships between religion and ecology.
1: Awesome, awesome. I could go on, Joan No, Halifax. no, 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 no. no. <laughs> This, Light, is, this, is not, this is not an oscar speech tequila <laughs> you're gonna get your shot one of these days don't worry
0: uh, we'll, no, we'll have
1: we'll have a whole side episode where you just thank people yeah it'll be great <laughs> right. uh, uh it, we'll call it how to be appreciative and and uh it'll be important because it's an important thing oh it is you uh, should do you guys should do that do a do minute it. of appreciation in your podcast. I have a gratitude journal, so oh, you know, that's
2: lovely. Yes, yeah. Try it,
0: okay. try cool. Okay, Brian, go uh, ahead. Tequila, qu- uh, question number three: What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Specifically,
2: when it comes to um, thinking about climate change, and especially when you know when I'm reading about disasters, then. I- As Quinn knows, I go and rebuild and build my bug out bags Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, go through everything and restash them. So that's one of the things I do. But the other thing I do, obviously, or not maybe not obviously, but the other thing I do is meditate and time in nature. And just even if it is, you know, 20 minutes in the weekend that I get to go out and just be in a forest. Um Yeah, that probably keeps me going for the next week.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I assume that might be part of your answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how do you consume the news?
2: Well, sadly, Twitter is probably mm. the first way I do. It's
0: not, at least it's not uh, Facebook.
2: Yeah, it, it's not. I actually am almost completely off Facebook. It's. I think yeah, the most know. recent horrifying thing was that um, there are all these other companies that share information with Facebook about women's periods. Um, oh, good, good good.
1: So. good, good, so You could have said like, anything, oh, by oh, the way. You could have said the most yeah. recent horrifying thing is, and it'd be like Mad Libs. Yeah. You could just make it yeah. up, dokey dokey.
2: And but I can't switch off Facebook because I have so many monks there that I can reach through, through Facebook. Sure, so Same. I that's have the, to the problem. Leaders, you know, so. That's why I have it on Facebook.
0: Uh, Awesome. Okay, uh, last question. If you could Amazon Prime one book to uh, Donald Trump, what would that book be?
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Could it just be a ton of books that would be... One book,
0: Tequila. See, she's doing it again. we will do a side episode where you just name Uh, all the books.
2: You know, to be honest, probably a book on compassion. Because ultimately, at the core of it, oh, my God, what a suffering individual.
1: Yeah. Uh, do, you specific, do you have a specific right. book on, on compassion?
0: Um. Well, the deal is we have an Amazon book list, Aquila, and we actually uh, put all the recommendations on there. And, and our listeners can actually uh, send send these books to the White House. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I can think of, okay, there is a really... The Joy of Living by Mingyu Rumbachi. That mm-hmm. is, uh, I don't know if you know who he is, but he has he's he is a twin Buddhist senior monk who also is a scientist, and I think that would be a really nice combination.
1: Awesome! I love it. Perfect! I love it. I would actually one of my recommendations on that front on today's topic is um, one of my favorites, Being Peace. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one at all. It's a uh, it's a popular book by uh, uh, Tich Nhat Hanh. Uh um, oh, yeah, from I think God when is it, to, to the two early two thousands I think something yeah. like that yeah. just an incredible small little book that I've given to a yeah, number of people but, have
2: it. yeah uh, yeah, that's a that would be amazing, very nice, a very calming training
1: right that somebody else yeah. could read to him with pictures <laughs> flash
2: uh-huh. sentences, yep, yep. not more than five words
1: yep yep, 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 <laughs> awesome, hey, where can our listeners follow you on the internet?
2: I'm on Twitter, uh D They could also I think that's probably the easiest way. I'm also on Instagram. Um I would love for them to check out the Loca Initiative. So it's Center of Healthy Minds. So center of dot org slash loca dash initiative. Those are always feel free to reach out to me. Happy, happy to talk as always, and build bridges.
1: Awesome. Well, I, I love it. We need more of that uh bridge building these days instead of wall wall building. <laughs> Unless we're just keeping on white guys, in which case I will help build it. Yeah, we have got enough white guys. Put myself thank behind you. It. Um, uh, Tequila, thank you so much, so much. Uh, for your time today oh, and the unique you perspective uh, you have you have brought to both our conversation, but you're also bringing to the world and, um, and, and doing things, making, make, building that pipeline. Uh, thank it, you so it's gonna much. It's going to make a difference.
0: Both for
2: you. It was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed myself.
1: Well, have Ditto. a wonderful day, a wonderful weekend, and uh, we will we will talk to you soon. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species.
0: And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at important, not imp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at important, not important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks please. And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very
1: awesome Tim Blaine for our jam music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great
0: day. Thanks, guys.